Welcome to a special topical episode of Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials and special guests for a dynamic discussion of the most important political and legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. There is no more important civic institution than our public schools. By design, they fulfill the essential promise of equal opportunity for all Americans, rich and poor. They develop virtue and democratic citizenship. They position the United States to prosper in a competitive world. But in practice, our public school system today is falling far, far short of its aspirations. Indeed, propelled by the pandemic and by political conflict mirroring that of the country at large, the last few years have plunged American schools into crisis with potential grave consequences for a generation of students. This year, the National Assessment of Education Progress data showed the steepest drop in math proficiency scores since 1990 and pointed to decades, literally, of lost progress around the country. The declines affected all demographics and regions, but they fell hardest on students who already were most at risk. In the words of the Secretary of Education, the results are appalling, unacceptable, and a reminder of the impact that this pandemic has had on our learners. It's not a situation we can countenance or one we can ignore and hope for the best. If public schools aren't educating, our democracy isn't working. To lay out the current crisis in public education and situate it both historically And against the backdrop of our current political turmoil, we are really fortunate to welcome three of the country's most prominent experts in public school education. And they are Laura Meckler, the national education writer for The Washington Post, where she covers K-12 education across the country, as well as federal education policy and politics. She previously wrote for The Wall Street Journal and Associated Press, covering presidential politics, including the 2016 presidential campaign, immigration, and health care policy. Among other honors, Laura was a part of a team that won the George Polk Award for Justice Reporting in 2020. She's currently at work on a book about race and housing and politics in her hometown of Shaker Heights. Laura, how's that going? And can you give us a quick preview of what that's going to be about? Absolutely. It's going well. Um, It's currently being edited. It's done with the heavy lifting of writing. It's really about the long-term relationship with Shaker Heights, which is the inner ring suburb of Cleveland, and issues of race, which is expressed both in housing and very much in schools. It's a place that was founded as of overtly racist sort of escape for wealthy Clevelanders and evolved into a real integration pioneer over many years, first in housing and then in education. And in more recent years has struggled with questions of, you know, how do you make the promise of racial equity real? So it's about all of those things. We'll really look forward to that. Chris Surf. Chris served as Newark Public Schools Superintendent from 2015 to 2018 and the New Jersey Commissioner of Education from 2011 to 2014. As Education Commissioner, he oversaw 2,500 public schools, 1.4 million students, and 110,000 teachers. Prior to his career in education, Chris served as Associate Counsel to President Clinton, 
He was a partner in two D.C. law firms, and he clerked for Justice Sandra Day O'Connor on the U.S. Supreme Court. Currently, he's the president of Montclair Education Partners, and he sits on the board of directors of several companies working in the K-12 education arena. Chris, thank you so much for joining this special episode of Talking Feds. It's a great pleasure. Arnie Duncan. Arnie served as the U.S. Secretary of Education in the Obama administration from 2009 to 2015. Prior to that, he was CEO of Chicago Public Schools for eight years. He now works as the managing partner of Emerson Collective and co-founder and managing partner of Chicago Cred, an organization working to reduce gun violence in his hometown of Chicago. He's also a distinguished senior fellow at the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. In 2018, he published the book, How Schools Work, an inside account of failure and success from one of the nation's longest-serving secretaries of education. Arnie Duncan, thank you so much for joining this special episode of Talking Feds. Thanks so much for the opportunity. So let's move into the topic of the day, the, well, public education writ large, but especially the current crisis. So I want to situate the problems in the context of the institution of the public school, as we've come to know it, Over the last 150 years, American public schools have transformed from nearly non-existent to local schoolhouses to the vast bureaucratic machines they are today. Let me start here. What would you say, if it's possible, is the sort of mission statement of the public school as we know it today in the last, say, 50 years? Well, let me just say that you've gone to the heart of the problem, because I think there is not a uh, universally accepted consensus about what the purpose of public education is. Indeed, it has evolved considerably in the last century and a half from, for example, facilitating the melting pot to advancing democratic values in many communities that is a tremendous source of jobs and there's a focus on employment. I can tell you what my definition is, and that is to fulfill the sort of national ideal of equalizing opportunity, which means that regardless of one's birth circumstances or demographics, one should be launched into adulthood fully prepared for success in life. It is a great question and a complicated one, but for me, it's just got to be the tool, the mechanism that allows every child to have a chance to fulfill their hopes and dreams. And I think the American dream in public education is that regardless of you know race or socioeconomic status or zip code, that if you work hard, you have a chance to climb the economic ladder because of the quality of public education. That's the dream. We know, unfortunately, the reality is that often there's a big disparity in opportunities between the haves and the have-nots. And so far too often, the different quality of public education actually exacerbates the divide between the haves and the have-nots. And that's the battle we have to fight. That's the battle we have to to win and to overcome that. You know, it's not hard to see that those, they're not such nuances really, but differences in education lead directly into sort of fault lines in the kinds of fights or loggerheads we're at today. Let's stay with this a little and the very important structure of school systems, their structure, their financing, their curriculum are, as I think of it, 
purposely separated from the rest of government. And I'm thinking mainly of the school board structure. I wonder how it kind of came to be and how it's designed to work. So the word that I think best describes almost every aspect of public education is fragmentation. Unlike most Western countries where there's a national education policy, we are you know, inheritors of the American Revolution. We uh, have these things called states. Somewhere around the progressive era, I used to be a high school history teacher back in the day, where there was a real focus on municipal corruption. So we're roughly 100 years ago? Yeah, we're roughly the turn of the 20th century yeah. in that mm-hmm. general era. Um, there was sort of a view that the education of our children is far too important to be caught up in sort of the machine politics that then characterized many cities in the country. And the byproduct of that was to create these things called school boards. And school boards do not report to mayors. They do not report to city councils. They're meant to be nonpartisan, and they're meant to be focusing on the best interests of children. There are in the zone of 13,300, no one really has the exact number of school boards across the country. The great majority are elected from the community. There are a handful of mayorly controlled ones. New York City was when I was deputy chancellor there. But I would tell you that the promise and purpose of the school board structure has not survived, in my judgment, the test of time. So Chris says meant to be with a kind of underline I could see in the air. Do you share the assessment of the failure of the school board structure to live up to the ideals that, you know, was its genesis? Well, I think it's complicated by a number of factors. One is the there are a lot of very complicated, hard issues facing schools. And I don't think it's always clear that the school board is made up of people who really know how to solve those problems or how to improve things. Because they're elected? Well, yes, they're elected. Obviously, we have people elected to all sorts of government who may or may not know exactly what they're doing. But schools are faced with a very specific task. They aren't just simply setting overarching policy. They are um, running a school system that is educating actual children. And I don't know that they're always up for that. But, you know, beyond that, also, I think what we've seen more recently is a very heavy politicization of school boards. And not that that wasn't true before, but you've certainly seen it on steroids in the last couple of years where we've seen um, driven by conservative concerns about how, first, how race was being taught in schools, and more recently, how issues of gender and gender identity are talked about in schools. You have this uprising on the right, and they have gotten involved nationally in trying to influence the results of school board elections and also gin up local folks to go. And, you know, we had a summer last year where there were people just screaming disrupting school board meetings, becoming, you know, highly political. So you have sort of laid on the already very difficult task of just trying to, as Chris said, create some sort of level of equal opportunity in this country, which is a difficult task to start with. And then you have this heavy dose of politics in in many parts of the country. So I do think that those are huge challenges for school boards. And, you know, I do want to move to that, especially the political conflicts of the high profile ones of the last few years, sticking a little bit with the traditional model, which I put in air quotes just because my sense is that 
it's changed dramatically every, maybe every generation but seems to me a big part of what happened in schools maybe in the last 40 years with the participation of the federal government is this attempt to standardize in some ways and set a floor for achievement and kind of a core curriculum first am i accurate about that and is that separate and apart from the whole school board structure we are talking about and how has it generally fared? They are linked only by one important facet. The federal government distributes billions of dollars through certain programs, Title I being the leading one. It heads the power of the purse. And if you look at No Child Left Behind or Race to the Top. Those were both federal programs, both right? federal Under programs. Obama it, and Bush. Yep. Right. The U.S. Department of Education, which actually didn't even exist until the Carter administration, if I recall correctly, basically said, we're going to hold up distribution of funds unless you meet certain conditions. But I would not confuse that for a national education policy. Mm -hmm. We, and I'm going to use a pejorative word, if you'll forgive me, we fetishize local control in public education to the point when I was state commissioner in New Jersey, we had 586 different school boards and districts, which is extremely hard to defend by any rational economic or substantive measure. The federal government does attempt to influence, I would say, during the Obama administration, actually goes back to the first Bush administration. There was an effort to regulate through the power of the person, did some terrific things. But we don't have national standards. We don't have a national test. We don't have a program that identifies here's the right way to teach early literacy, for example. We leave that to each of these districts to make that decision and occasionally to states to guide the districts within them. And what about the whole aspect of schools as inculcators of virtue or of, you know, it's civic ideals? So I think of this from what Chris said, based on the federalist tradition in the country and how there would be real differences in different regions. But is that sort of by design or does the whole move towards school boards and core curriculum, is that meant to kind of set to the side the training of citizenship and good participants in a democracy? That's such an important question and role. And I don't say this easily or lightly, but things that I believed all my life, the three branches of government and checks and balances, I just thought that would be here forever. That was fundamental, foundational. And I will say in the past you know, five, six years, my understanding of how fragile our democracy is has just changed everything about how I, I view this institution. It's so, so beautiful and yes, so fragile. And so I think schools have a tremendously important role to help our young people understand their role and not just understanding the history, but not just in defending democracy, but in reinventing and strengthening democracy with each generation. And there's no other institution in America that's better positioned to do that, that, that can do that, other than our American public schools. Well, I think that that is still a, a considered a core part of education. I mean, it's a required course. People have to 
learn some basics about, about civics. I think the bigger problem we have goes well beyond schools, which is do we have a national consensus about what civics are about or what democracy is about? I mean, we don't even agree on who won the last election. <laughs> and you laugh, but that's like a serious, that reflects a serious divides in this country over yeah. what our civic life is about. So, and I do think you see those kinds of things trickling down into schools, those debates. But that said, I think on the basic level, Chris, you correct me if I'm wrong, but I think schools do still have a basic mandate to teach about civics and that that is something that most kids will be exposed to, at least if not mastered by the time they leave. I think there's a tremendous amount of confusion about the role of schools in conveying values, whether it's the constitutional ideals, for example, and so on. On the one hand, there's no question, and Laura just got this completely right, that that is one of the core purposes of the school. That's why compulsory public education came into being. At least one reason is to pass on our national traditions, to facilitate the melting pot, to bring everyone under a common set of values and understandings. On the other hand, it's sort of an axiom that schools are not supposed to indoctrinate, right? They're certainly not supposed to indoctrinate when it comes to religion. But then some would say, yeah, well, you're not supposed to indoctrinate about, you know, the proper place of our national stain of slavery in the entirety of the national experience or the role of race and identity or how you think about gender issues. So you, on the one hand, you have a lot of folks saying, yeah, we want you to teach American history. By the way, don't say that we lost the Vietnam War, but we want you to teach American history and we want you to teach the three parts of government. But we surely don't want you to tell our eighth grader that, you know, not everybody's either male or female. Whom were you quoting just then? Or we, the we there who don't want are those are those parents, are those the uh, non-school political governance? Who are the we? Well, Laura has written very eruditely about this, including, I believe, this morning. But the last couple of years, I think more or less catalyzed by the Youngkin successful gubernatorial election for Governor mm -hmm. Youngkin in Virginia, there's actually been organized interest groups who have coalesced around taking certain positions. There was a very deliberate and highly misleading media campaign around something called critical race theory that, you know, honestly has made being a school board member or a superintendent a pretty terrifying proposition for yeah. a lot of folks. Although this is not 100% new, right? And again, we're setting the table and we'll be moving to the next couple of years. But I'm thinking of, I don't know, the busing era or the scopes trial or the 60s. There have been times where dearly held local political beliefs have chafed against the uh, you know, curriculum decisions by school boards. Yeah. Well, I think that really what's happened with schools is that Whatever the debates are that we're having in our public life have found a way to reflect themselves in the schools. So maybe at one point that was a debate over, as you said, the Vietnam War, or a debate over whether we should teach evolution, whether we should talk about abstinence and sex education. All of these questions are larger values debates that we're having as a country, and then they find their ways and be reflected in schools. And if we rewind the critical race theory conversation, just a little bit. I think we'll look at, say, in the immediate aftermath of George Floyd's murder, you saw a lot of American institutions, including schools, reacting and saying, you know, we need a bigger focus on racial equity. There was already a 
a move towards racial equity in schools before then, but that sort of turbocharged it where you had school districts saying, we need to look at our numbers. We need to look at our policies. We need to look at why are more black kids not in advanced classes. We need to look at our whole suite of what we're teaching. Is it culturally responsive? Are we including everyone? And they took all these steps in that direction. And then there was this reaction. And, you know, whether it was quote unquote critical race theory or not is sort of beside the point. What it was, was it was talking and shining a spotlight on issues of race, reflecting what the debate was happening in our larger country. And then you had this reaction from the right saying, whoa, 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 I don't want to talk about that. You're saying that there's systemic racism. I'm offended by that. You're saying that there's white supremacy. I'm offended by that. And then there was this backlash. So I think the important takeaway from all this, if we're taking the long view, which you, know, you clearly are here, is that schools are reflecting the larger debates that we're having as a nation. And it is awful and ugly, and it gets even particularly ugly because it involves people's kids. So it feels very emotional. Think about it, how much it changes so quickly. It was critical race theory a year ago, and now it's you know tr- issues of transgender kids. I mean, that's what's much more front and center who can be on sports teams and who knows, you know, a year from now what it'll be. But I think that in any case, these debates are not isolated to schools. So I think that does set the table. Another thing that we could discuss is the whole role of teachers, teachers unions, et cetera, and how that has changed. But I think we all agree and Laura kind of sets it out you know, very well that we're kind of at a crisis point driven not simply as a reflection of politics, but also by COVID. And I think we can break it down maybe in terms of the political sort of Sturm und Drang that you were just talking about, but also a student achievement crisis. In fact, let's start there. So, you know, there's a current crisis for public education from the vantage point of student achievement. Arnie's successor as Secretary of Education, Miguel Cardona, reacting to the latest results of a national survey said they are appalling, unacceptable, and a reminder of the impact that this pandemic has had on our learners. Pretty scathing words. So let's just start with the facts. We've had these historic drops in national reading and math scores. Can anyone sort of help explain the nature of the gaps, math versus reading, race, geographic trends, and the like? What have the last COVID years brought us? Well, I'm going to jump in and at risk of being pushy, I'm going to suggest a slight reframing because the way you have accurately described it is the way the general media described it. Like basically the message is we were doing pretty swell and then the pandemic happened and then everybody dropped. Well, we weren't doing well. And indeed, there is a connection between the topic of student achievement and the topic of politics, which we were talking about before. I mean, when you go to a school board meeting and all of the oxygen is taken out of the air by a debate about which book to put in the library, which book to take out, how to teach a sensitive subject, and you look around and you see that children at the bottom end of the socioeconomic scale are reading at you know, 15 or 20 percent of proficiency in, in many schools or that the majority of kids who graduate from high school by any objective measure are actually not prepared to take the next step in life. What really I think the crisis of politics here is it is taken our collective eyes off the ball. And while the pandemic provides, you know, a powerful explanatory force to explain the drop, we already were in a place where our ideal of equality of opportunity was a long way from realized. Arnie, can I follow up with you on that? Because your book, 
about failures and successes in school comes out in 2018, written pre-COVID. Do you basically share Chris's assessment? Yeah, I think we all know, unfortunately, the tremendous disparities and opportunities already in the public education system. And anytime there's a crisis, whether it's an economic crisis or a health crisis, obviously COVID was a bit of both educational crisis, the children who need the most help are the ones that are hurt the most. And I saw one stat that just was devastating to me that the children in the bottom 10 percentile fell behind four times more than children in the top 10 percentile. And so you just look at those disparities. And for me, we need like a national sprint through this school year in the summer, going back into fall next year, you know, 10 months from now. And absent that, I worry we lose a generation of kids who, to Chris's point, won't be ready to take the next step, won't graduate from high school. And I'm honestly not seeing the urgency. I'm not feeling the urgency. You know, this is a, not a system-wide, this is a child-by-child, child. where are they struggling? How do we help them physically, virtually, hybrid, whatever it might be? And I'm desperately worried that we're not seeing the kind of urgency and the strategy we need to help close that gap absolutely as fast as we can. All right. Well, wherever we were, and whether it was already unacceptably low or not, the last couple years coinciding with COVID have brought this drop. And of course, a drop, as the secretary says, that's even more dramatic with the lower achieving kids and minority kids. So what do you posit is the reason for it? Well, there's no question that the pandemic is behind the most recent drops. I mean, the the fact that we were at unacceptable levels before then, you know, there are many explanations for, and it's been a decades-long effort to try to address, including, you know, the other two guests on this podcast have spent their careers working on that. So, you know, there's no question that this was a problem beforehand. That said, the numbers are unmistakable, not just those numbers that particularly the secretary was referring to, but all sorts of data is coming out now from many different researchers looking at student achievement post-pandemic. Not that we're out of the pandemic now, but in the first couple of years after. And they all show deep declines, um, more so in math than in reading, but in both. And they show essentially that the kids who were struggling the most going in lost the most during the course of the pandemic and are, are catching up the most slowly. So there's no question that those things are happening and that is the pandemic um, that is to blame. There's also a lot of data that shows that the longer you were in remote education, the more your scores dropped. Now, not all the data doesn't show that, and that doesn't explain all of the drops or all of the variation across the country, but it explains some of it for sure. I mean, you know, if you weren't going to school, obviously you were not learning. And I'll just add that I think that if you just think about the very different types of experience that different kids had, during the pandemic, you can see how this whole experience our country has gone through has just exacerbated the inequities. So imagine the child of affluent, educated parents who have a lot of resources. You know, what did they do? Some of them formed learning pods where now they're getting, you know, education practically one on one or tutors. They have parents who are working from home who can help them. Now, was it great? No, there were enormous social emotional tolls, which we haven't even talked about. And that happened for kids of all stripes. But academically, there were a lot of supports around that. 
And then you think about a kid whose parents were struggling, had to maybe go into work, maybe had lost their job, struggling economically, barely had an internet connection, maybe five people on the same connection, can't put your camera on or or the connection will bug out, maybe nobody there making sure you're doing your work, maybe not showing up for school at all, maybe working at the job when you should be at school. I mean, so many different things that were pressures bearing. So is it really a surprise that we've seen this differential in academic achievement? I don't think it is. And just to zero in, and it's a very dramatic decline that I didn't fully realize until I started preparing for the show. The the math in particular, I think it's wiped out a generation of gains. Everyone spoke about socioeconomic problems. What about, is there a geographic distribution or are there other ways that certain sectors of the country were hit harder than others? You know, I think it's very difficult to unpack the data. I think that'll happen over time. You know, for example, I believe I have this right, that Los Angeles, which was out of school for longer than almost anybody, saw less drop. I don't think that we can tar remote learning with as broad a brush as some would like. Effectively, what happened is schools didn't know what to do, and they defaulted to what I call emergency remote instruction, which is not the same as really targeted, quality, effective using digital tools. Some are teacher-led, some are student-led. And I looked at, you know, not to open a hornet's nest here, but there were some schools I know of that teach predominantly children who are living in poverty that immediately transition to really effective remote instruction led by great teachers and did fine through the pandemic. Look, as a former teacher, I'll tell you that the idea of not having this deep personal spiritual in a non-denominational sense connection between a teacher and a student is just really hard to do without the benefit of proximity. But I think it's hard to draw generalized conclusions about that particular feature of the experience. I do agree that it's going to take time for us to truly unpack this. And the NAEP scores, National Assessment of Educational Progress scores that you, Chris, I think you were referring to, did not really show a connection between remote and achievement. But there have been a lot of other data that does suggest that there's a connection there. So It does seem clear that some districts did a much better job with remote education than others. Some teachers did a better job just watching my own kids. I saw one of them had a fabulous experience. I mean, this teacher, I think at the time this was a first or second grade teacher, she was working it so well. I mean, I was so impressed by what she was doing with these kids. My other kid was, I think, in fifth grade at the time, and I was horrified by what I was seeing. And this is the same school, much less not to mention the same school district. So there was a lot of variation, but I do agree it's going to take some time to sort through these data and really see what it shows. But I do think there are some heavy indications that remote schooling was a factor. Absolutely agree. And then over to Arnie, but absolutely agree that it was a factor, but it, it was highly dependent on the nature of the, and by the way, remote suggests a binary, like it's either in person or not. There's a lot of ways to instruct digitally. And there's also this very odd exit from traditional public schools right now that's going on towards charters, parochial, private, and substantially remote alternatives, which is a little bit hard to explain. And has huge implications itself. I just sort of built on Chris's point not to further complicate a difficult conversation, but there was definitely an exodus of kids from traditional public school to other schools. 
but I'm actually much more concerned. There was an excess of, of children from school to no school, just they mm -hmm. left school. And so we're talking about test scores and gaps. Those are kids we can measure. Those are kids that are still enrolled in school. And by some estimates, there are as many as a million children around the country who just left school, didn't transfer, didn't whatever. They left school. And again, I just desperately worry about a lost generation. And there's no high-tech way to do this. This is high touch. This is knocking on doors and meeting with kids and figuring out, you know, to the point that Laura made, if your kids are working, can we do evening school? Can we be flexible? Can we figure this out to do school on the weekends? But there's a whole lot of kids across the country who left school during the pandemic because they had to, they had to work, family struggling, whatever it might be. And again, I'm not convinced we've done a good job at all of finding those kids and bringing them back into the fold. It's not too late, but that has to happen with a tremendous sense of urgency. And teaching itself is a challenge. This is just anecdotal, kind of as Laura said, but as a teacher myself, though, post-secondary and as a parent, you know, it's a whole different skill set knowing how to teach virtually. And a lot of teachers who are great in so many ways just didn't have it. It's time now for our sidebar feature in which we ask a well-known person to explain an important legal concept of federal law or policy. And today, in keeping with the theme of our topical episode, we are going to explain the contributions that the federal government can make or does make to support the efforts of young girls to study STEM courses or women to go into STEM careers. And very appropriately to explain it to us, I'm really pleased to welcome Danica McKellar, an actress, mathematician, and education advocate. She is, of course, best known for her role as the winsome gamine Winnie Cooper in The Wonder Years, which resulted in the entire country's crushing on her, and certainly I was among them. But she can also be seen in the Netflix original project, MC Squared, and several Hallmark movies. And she's the voice of Miss Martian in the superhero series Young Justice and has been the voice of Judy Jetson for the Jetsons since 2016. As important, if not more, Danica has authored 11 books for different ages from 2 to 16 that explain math concepts in easy-to-digest ways and encourage girls to have the confidence and interest to pursue mathematics. As a mathematician, she's been honored in Britain's Journal of Physics and the New York Times for her role in co-authoring the mathematical physics theorem, the chase mckellar Wynn Theorem. So, quite a double threat. I give you Danica McKellar on federal government's contribution to STEM careers and studies. How does the federal government attempt to address the underrepresentation of girls in STEM subjects? Although women now make up a majority of college and graduate students, they continue to lag far behind men in enrollment in computer sciences, engineering, physics, and other STEM subjects. A report released by the American Association of University Women traces the dearth of women in STEM positions to elementary school, where widely held stereotypes that boys are better at math and science than girls take root. These stereotypes work to discourage girls from excelling in STEM topics and eventually from pursuing higher degrees in STEM fields. As a result, there are many fewer women role models for girls interested in STEM subjects to look for guidance or inspiration. 
This disparity is unfair to girls and women, but it also threatens the long-term worldwide competitiveness of the United States in a series of critical fields. Now, Title IX of the Education Amendments of 1972 prohibits sex discrimination in all educational programs or activities that receive federal funding. This is the law that works to advance equal opportunity for women in collegiate sports. By its terms, it requires that women and girls be given equal opportunities to pursue science, technology, engineering, and math STEM fields free from discriminatory barriers. It would be a challenge, however, to apply Title IX to the problem of STEM disparity, which arises less from overt discrimination than subtle stereotyping. The last few administrations have undertaken measures to address the problem, though they have been relatively modest, consisting mainly of grants or encouragement of efforts by the private sector. Most recently, the Department of Education announced You Belong in STEM. The government initiative claims to challenge narratives about who belongs in STEM learning and careers that over generations have left out millions of girls and young women, as well as other marginalized groups. The initiative aims to promote positive conditions for STEM learning and also to support a diverse educator workforce in STEM teaching positions. Other grant programs housed under the Education Department have a STEM focus, such as the Minority Science and Engineering Improvement Program, which has awarded colleges and universities hundreds of thousands of dollars to increase the flow of underrepresented ethnic minorities, particularly minority women, into science and engineering careers. Finally, the government has attempted to encourage private investment in programs that address the disparity. The best example is 2016 initiative to prepare 100,000 new math and science teachers by 2021 and securing more than a billion in private investments to improve STEM education, including several initiatives focused on women and girls under the aegis of the administration's Council on Women and Girls. You know, that's all great, but these programs, they cast a wide net covering careers and education, targeting male and female children and adults. But to get to the problem at its genesis, we need to have programs that target girls in middle school, the age when the disparity kicks in. For Talking Feds, I'm Danica McKellar. Thank you very much, Danica McKellar, for explaining the federal government's role in promoting girls' education in STEM courses and women's careers in STEM professions. You can see Danica now on the Hallmark Channel this holiday season in Christmas at the Drive-In, where she plays a property lawyer who finds holiday romance while trying to save her local drive-in theater. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine & More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's Spirited Debate, we crack open the topic of aging wine in traditional oak barrels versus stainless steel tanks. There are many types of oak from various countries, but in general, oak is the most pliable wood, great for forming a barrel and even better for storing liquids. Oak barrels have a limited life cycle, though, whereas stainless steel can be used over and over, point for stainless. There's also new oak, which has a tendency to give wine the complexities that make it interesting, adding spice aromas such as coconut and vanilla, or even hints of allspice and cinnamon. On the other hand, old oak doesn't pick up much flavor, but it does give the wine a softer texture. Stainless steel, on the other hand, is exactly what you'd expect. Clean and contemporary, adding little to the wine, in a good way, that is, Wines aged in stainless tanks are crisp and focused, 
allowing the fresh fruit flavor to shine for the truest expression of the grape. So, who wins in oak versus stainless? Why not pick up one of each at your local Total Wine and you decide? Thanks to our friends at Total Wine and more for today's A Spirited Debate. Let's spend a few minutes on the political aspect of the last few years, which has been, it seems to me, not just an aggravating factor, but a kind of a strange one. You adverted or to the aftermath of the George Floyd episode when I think something like 17 states are making special curriculum that are more sensitive and a reaction of 30 states is to fight back against it. School board meetings didn't always seem to be like this. I don't know. First, how much does it aggravate our overall basic core mission of just educating kids? And is it singular or is it just a kind of rehearsal of prior kinds of politicized eras in the country? First of all, I think Laura made a very important point that this is a reflection of broader trends. And, you know, we talked about the, you know, the Scopes trial and, uh, prior moments where politics made their way into school. I view this as a difference in kind. I think it's turbocharged by social media. I think that the ability for sort of national political advisors to try to identify and leverage an issue for their own political objectives is different now than it was in prior times. You know, there's a very interesting question that Laura's raised in, in her reporting about, you know, whether that worked, right, what effect it had on the midterm elections. But I can tell you that I have lots of conversations across the country with superintendents, and it is a terrifying job to have right now. And indeed, it's very hard to get a lot of those jobs filled because you really don't know which way to turn. And also, historically, nobody votes in these school boards elections. They typically take place in off-year times very low turnout, very subject to interest group capture. Usually people point to the unions as the culprit in that, but that's hardly uh, universally the case. It can be one of these sort of national interest groups. There's a particular position on race, for example, race education. So I do think that whether it's effective or not, I think this is different in kind and magnitude than in the past. Yeah, this one is a, it's a, it's a huge deal. and I, I don't want to sort of blow, blow through it. and. For me, it's just there are three very real challenges that that at least three major crises that districts are facing. One that we're talking about is sort of the learning loss and how do we accelerate you know student learning and kids to get them back on track. The second, which I, I don't think we've talked about unless I missed it earlier, is sort of the exodus of, of teachers and sort of rebuilding the workforce. And the third one, I just can't let this go, is is the epidemic of gun violence. And as we're speaking, we've had on college campuses, we've had seven college students killed in the past two days, two other shot. We've had 68 school shootings this school year. That's more than one a week. And there's definitely silence. We've already moved on. It's just stunning to me. And so those are, for me, real, real crises that deserve you know, thought and strategy and thinking it through. And then you have, I'm just in blunt for better or worse, just a bunch of made up manufactured concocted stuff, CRT, kitty litter in the bathroom or something, just literally fantastical made up stuff to create drama and fear when there's no need to, but there's real need on these other issues. So it's a massive dilution of, of thinking and people working together. The good news is you probably saw the report in the recent school board elections, most of the, the crazy stuff didn't win. Moderation and thoughtfulness generally prevailed. 
But because these are kids' lives, because this, the stakes are so high, it's not just aggravating, scary to Chris's point. It does our children, ultimately our country, a tremendous disservice. And I just hate that we refuse to take such a serious job as seriously as we need to take it. Yeah, let's in fact move to solutions, but just quickly fast forwarding to the present. Laura, you've written about this and been covering. So just following up on the secretary's point, the kind of parental rights movement, if you want to identify it that way, or Mums for Liberty or whatever it is, how how did that cadre fare in the midterms? I spent some time today, in fact, trying to sort through exactly what those numbers are. I mean, the, the easy answer is mixed. Some won, some lost. They certainly didn't roll roll over their opponents by any means. There, there were victories. I, I don't know if it's going to be even or not. I think it's going to take some time to find out exactly what the numbers are. But I think the best, most honest thing we can say is that the results were mixed. Um, now, at the top of the ticket, we saw more losses. There were quite a few people running for governor who really leaned heavily into these culture war issues and who lost. So that was true of Governor Kelly in Kansas was attacked over transgender sports. Governor Mills in Maine was attacked over um, an issue about a lesson that dealt with gender identity. Both of those challengers lost. In Michigan, Tudor Dixon, the Republican, leaned heavily into these culture war stuff. She lost. So there were quite a few examples of that. But on the school board level, you know, as it was said earlier, there are hundreds, if not thousands of school board races every cycle. So it's very preliminary. And Chris mentioned the maybe countervailing example of Yunkin in Virginia, which people will be talking about. All right. We have time now to focus on going forward. I'd, I'd like to start with the image that Arnie raised about the sort of sprint and what we might be doing. Uh, let me just start with a simple question, which is, you know, if we had a uh, infinite checkbook and it was just all the resources we could pour into the schools, would that basically do it? Or is it much more complicated than that? I think schools have more money than they've ever had in their history recently. Right. Yeah. You know, money coming from the Fed. So money isn't the issue. They may have more money than God. And so for me, that the lack of resources, which is often very, very real, I really do think that, I don't want to call it an excuse, but that issue gets thrown out the window. And the truth is the vast majority of schools have not spent down that money. And I get, we all know the funding cliff that's coming. So you don't want to build in long-term expenses. But this high dosage, high intensity tutoring that I'm talking about, yeah. that's a short-term, time-limited thing. So it's a perfect use of those resources. So I'm, again, tremendously confused and honestly frustrated that given the resources that every district has way beyond what they've ever had historically, that we don't have a plan for every single child who's behind in reading math to catch them up. So you've asked us to imagine that imaginary world in which there's a blank check, right? And Arnie completely nails the point that this is not a question of money. But I'd like to imagine an imaginary world where you can reorganize the way we deliver public education. And if I could do that, then there are a lot of things I would do. Right now, other than the power of the purse, which during the Obama years, Arnie used very effectively, basically conditioning or threatening to condition Title I funds on a number of important reforms, standards, accountability, et cetera. You know, for example, there is absolutely no excuse for how I would say a majority of our schools teach reading. And we have an incredible number of third graders who don't know how to read. And we know how to do that better. 
And yet we have evolved to 13,000 districts or 50 states, depending how you want to look at it, that you can pick whatever reading program you want, regardless of whether the research supports it. And that's basically what happened. So, you know, they say that Republicans uh, hate national and Democrats hate standards, and that's why we don't have national standards. <laughs> but the fragmented, highly distributed, non-centralized nature of these critical decisions, leaving it in the hands of boards that are sometimes overcome by these petty politics, as the secretary points out, make it very difficult to focus on things that work. I love this high-touch notion, right? So why are we spending money on sanitizing schools and putting in different ventilation systems instead of knocking on doors and finding kids who dropped out? You use the word devolve. So that raises to me, how does the federal versus state versus local government dynamic figure into this whole both mess and solution? Well, I mean, at the end of the day, education is still run locally. I mean, there are a variety of federal ways that the federal government can influence things most recently and notably with its checkbook. But now it's up to local school boards to decide how to spend that. And, you know, for all the chatter about critical race theory and all the rest, I mean, that is not the heart of what schools do anywhere. It is a side issue. So they're going to have to figure out how to do this, how to advance student achievement, both the urgent issue of catching kids up and also the ongoing issues that have been present for a long time. So, you know, I think that at the end of the day, everybody has their role to play, but this is a local issue. Everyone agree? I'm pushing on the, you know, I'm a, uh, Chris used to be a, a high school history teacher. I'm pushing on the kind of perennial strain through American history of Hamilton and Madison and the like. It sounded to me anyway, Chris, that you were suggesting more of a top-down, undevolved, federal kind of response incorporating the best thinking and hopefully being more removed from the really parochial kinds of battles that make it terrible to be a supervisor. Or is that wrong? How do you feel about a bigger federal role? And let me also ask the secretary that. Sure. Well, first of all, it'll never happen. Because? Because this country and our constitution is organized around leaving this in the hands of states, at least, and they've largely left it in the hands of districts. But, you know, I will tell you that if you look at some of the more successful countries, they have worked really hard collaborating with experts and universities and teachers and so on to figure out, you know, what is the most effective way, for example, to teach reading. And they have tried to align how they train teachers, what districts do, what the expectations are, how you measure whether those expectations are met from the center. Finland would be an example, perhaps an overused example. So in concept, I would be inclined to have a greater centralization at the state level and ideally even at the federal level. But I also recognize that that is anathema and will never happen. If anyone was going to do it, it was going to be uh, Secretary Duncan, and uh, he he gave it a run for its money. But um, I, I think that we've actually seen in the years since then a less of a federal role and a, right. a dial back of the powers that it, you know originated with the No Child Left Behind Act under President Bush and more continued under the Obama administration. I think that we see less of a federal role. So I think these things, you know, there's some cyclical nature to this, but I don't think we're at a moment now of high federal control. Agreed. All right. And even on the constitutional issue, I mean, the question is, how do the feds leverage the sort of power of funding? As you, as you say, and the secretary says, it's 
huge money flowing from the feds for education. What are the kinds of big ideas on the horizon as you see them? I was struck again preparing for this episode how every 20, 30 years there are, you know, new orthodoxies in education then maybe to be replaced, but are there kinds of big not slogans but, you know, watchwords that you think we'll be hearing about in the public school education in the next 10, 20, 30 years, or should be hearing about that will be almost kind of game changers? Well, this is a trigger word in the world of school politics, but I think that choice is ascendant right now. And by the way, I don't define choice merely as vouchers or different approaches to tax relief. I mean that your education is not limited to the four walls of your school. You, if you're in a high school that doesn't offer you know, BC Calculus AP, then you can take it remotely or take it at another school or the expansion of alternative public schools, which we call charter schools, but are equally public in every sense. The word interdistrict choice, a redefinition of homeschooling, which seems also to be ascendant. For better or worse, I think we've seen more migration in terms of state legislation and parental decision-making in the direction of choice, which I think is a very, very powerful uh, force of change. Whether it's for the good, others can debate, but I think it's a force of change. Just taking it in a different direction, just to your question about what ideas are out there, the thing that I hear the most about now in terms of student achievement is what Arnie mentioned earlier, the high-dosage tutoring. There's a lot of conversation about that, about ways to help students catch up by one-on-one or one-on-two. It doesn't even have to be a teacher. It can be another skilled person, you know, working with kids, even sometimes during the school day to help them try to catch up from some of these losses. So that seems to be an idea that has at least a degree of of support and that um, there is research behind to suggest that it's effective. Just try and quickly paint a a vision I would love to see happen and have largely, largely completely failed to, to make it happen. But Chris is obviously exactly right. Whether we want more centralization or more decentralization, we, you know, we are where we are. That's not going to fundamentally change. But having said that, what I would desperately love in our country is for us to unite behind a set of goals. And you can call them you know, parent rights or whatever it might be. Like I would love to see every child have access to high-quality pre-K. Chris talked about third grade reading. I'd love to see us unite behind a goal of raising high school graduation rates. I'd love to see us unite behind a goal of having all of our high school graduates college and career ready. I'd love to have us unite behind a goal of trying to lead the world in college completion. And so those are goals. And then we can have lots of differentiation, lots of different strategies at the local level, you know, urban, suburban, left, right. It just doesn't matter. And let's just track the data and see who's doing a good job and build upon successes and change. And we spend all our time in education fighting what I just think of these absolutely small ball <laughs> battles that are just dysfunctional. I call it adult dysfunction. I don't care whether it's, their schools are charter or not. Char- I just want good outcomes, college versus career. We need more going to college and more going to career. So if we could unite behind four goals, access to high quality pre-K, you know, high school graduation rates going up above 90%, 100% of graduates going on prepared for the next step in their education journey, trying to lead the world in college completion, then let's let everybody play, put all those good ideas out there and what works best in New Mexico might be different than Appalachia, might be different than inner city Chicago. But let's just have transparency. And if we did that, 
as a country, we could we could find some common ground, do the right thing by our kids, do the right thing by our parents, and do the right thing ultimately by our country. But the failure, and for me, those goals should be, they're not Republican or Democrat or left or right. Those are goals that the country could unite behind for the next you know, two or three decades, next quarter century. But obviously, I failed so far to, to get us close to thinking in that way. This really should be a weekly podcast in a series. <laughs> it's only the one episode, but hopefully for Talking Feds listeners, it, it at least orients us toward, you know, A, how serious the current uh, state of affairs is, and B, what possibly can be done. We are unfortunately out of time. We have only a minute for our final Talking Five feature where we pose a question that everyone has to answer in five words or fewer. And today, it's something that Chris actually already surfaced. What country do you think has the best public school system in the world and why? In five words or fewer, of course. Well, I guess I already led with my answer. I'm going to say Finland. And the why is because they look beyond conflict and try to collaboratively develop a common approach. Well, I'm going to cop out on this and say that I do make it a policy not to opine on things that I have not researched <laughs> and do not have an actually informed opinion on. And I do not feel qualified to judge the uh, school systems of the globe. You could say that in five words or fewer. I'll just say it in one word. Pass. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take a different take. I'll just say the thing that troubles me most, and I wrote about this is take third grade reading scores, math scores, science scores, whatever it might be. We are top 10 in the world in nothing. Yeah, We are top 10 in nothing. So that for me is heartbreaking. It's untenable. It's not sustainable. And I want it to be us. I want it to be us. That's my answer. Yeah. And I, knowing the least of everyone here, know that much, not us and what it portends, not just for kids and, you know, individual students, but actually the country going forward and our competitiveness in the world seems to me profound. We are out of time in this special episode. Thank you very much to Chris, Arnie, and Laura. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, Please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also now subscribe to us on YouTube, where we are posting full episodes, talking books, and bonus video content. You can follow us on Twitter, at TalkingFedsPod. And you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post bonus discussions with national experts about special topics exclusively for supporters. Submit your questions to TalkingFeds.com contact, whether it's for Talking 5 or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Olivia Henriksen. Sound engineering by Matt McArdle. Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. Production assistants by Laurel Feldner, Kalena Tano, Emma Maynard, and David Emmett. Thanks very much to actress and math professor, what a combo, Danica McKellar, for explaining the federal government's role in trying to encourage girls to take STEM courses and women to go into STEM professions. 
our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his beautiful music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later. Thank you.